Hi, I'm Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the POMEP's Middle East Political Science Podcast. With us today is Ora Sekley. She's a professor at Clark University, the author of a new book, The Politics of Militant Group Survival in the Middle East. Uh, Ora, a welcome to the program. Hi, Mark. Thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit uh, about this book, um, uh, which covers a quite a remarkable amount of ground in terms of uh, militant groups fighting in this Israel uh, cluster of states. Um, so what is the major argument of the book? Well, so maybe the best way to answer that is to, to explain how I got interested in all of this in the first place. Uh, the summer after my first year in graduate school, uh, I found myself in Beirut. I was meant to be volunteering with uh, UNRWA, which is the United Nations agency that works with Palestinian refugees. Uh, and I thought that I was going to do some research on Palestinian refugee integration in Lebanon. But that happened to be uh, July of 2006, which was the summer that the July war broke out. Uh, and I found myself with a very different summer experience than what <laughs> I had actually been banking on. Uh, and as I watched, you know, first in Beirut and, and later on uh, from Amman after, after I left Lebanon, as we, we all watched the war unfold, I found myself thinking, this is really strange. Uh, because as it turned out, Hezbollah did far better against the Israeli military than I think pretty much anybody expected. Maybe not better than Hezbollah themselves expected, but certainly better than the IDF expected. Uh, and I found this particularly interesting for the contrast that it posed with how pretty much every other non-state actor that had gone up against the Israelis in recent years had done. And so I found myself wondering, why is it uh, that you can have two militant groups that are fighting against the same adversary, same territory, uh, and yet you get these really, really different outcomes? The answer to that, at least the sort of the pat answer that we see embedded in a lot of reporting on the Middle East and, and reporting on, on non-state actors in general, is that how well a non-state actor, which, you know, they, they go by many different names, rebel groups, terrorist groups, mm -hmm. uh, insurgents, freedom fighters, you know, pick, pick your label. Um, there is this sort of implicit assumption that how well these guys do is basically a function of how much stuff they have. Uh, stuff being guns, money, uh, you know, ammunition, material resources. Right. But when you look a little bit more closely, it turns out that even groups that have pretty similar uh, amounts of equipment can have really different outcomes. And what I found is that it's not so much the stuff that you have, it's how you got it in the first place that really matters in shaping how you're going to do in the long run. And what makes the different organizations in the Arab-Israeli conflict ecosystem interesting to look at is that there really is a lot of very interesting basis for comparison, because for the most part, they are fighting the same military. They're mostly fighting against uh, the Israeli army, sometimes, you know, at different times and under somewhat different circumstances, but it does make for kind of an interesting set of comparisons. So, so why is... I'm sorry. So why isn't it enough then to say that uh, Hezbollah got weapons and training from Iran and that explains why they do so well? Well, because uh, Hamas has also gotten weapons and training from Iran, and yet their outcomes have, have looked somewhat different than Hezbollah's. Okay, so, so why is that? The, if you're if you're an organization, doesn't matter what kind of organization you are, whether you're uh, you know a little league team or a university or um, a non-state military actor, you need stuff to do your job. You need certain sets of resources, and some of those are going to be material resources. So if you're a militant group, that includes like the guns and the money. 
uh, but it also includes non-material stuff. It includes things like intelligence, political support, political legitimacy, which is often the hardest one to come by. And you have a couple of options in terms of where you're going to get the stuff that you need to do your job. For the most part, you're either going to get it from your local domestic constituents, that is from, from local civilians, or you're going to get it from your friends abroad, that is from foreign sponsor states. And no matter where you're getting it, no matter what the source of the resources is, you basically have three options in terms of how you're going to obtain it. Uh, and your options boil down to theft, barter, or gift. You can either steal the stuff that you need, you can trade for it, uh, either you know by providing services and military proxy to your foreign sponsors or, or to swapping things like social services for, for political support locally. Um, or if you're really smart, you can convince people to give you the stuff they need or the stuff that you need uh, just because they think you're great because they support your political project. And in order to do that, you need to convince them that you're great. You need to convince them to support your political project, which usually takes the form of a marketing campaign. So, yeah, so that's one of the interesting parts of the book is this discussion of marketing as a key part of, of insurgent strategy. And, um, and, and it's an interesting way of framing what these groups are doing. So how does Hezbollah market itself? Why, why is it so effective at marketing itself to the constituencies that matter? The interesting thing with Hezbollah is that they weren't always. So if we look at Hezbollah's early years, they're an example of a group uh, that is fairly bad at domestic policy uh, and fairly bad at foreign policy. With regard to their, their foreign patrons, they, uh, you know, they, they're basically a, a proxy for Iran in their early years, so the, that changes a lot later on. But domestically, their marketing campaign is pretty much non-existent. It boils down to handing out threatening leaflets in West Beirut and blowing up liquor stores. Uh, but after the end of the Civil War, uh, it, it's almost like watching an aircraft carrier turn around. I mean, there's this enormous change in the way that the organization presents itself to Lebanon as an audience, uh, not just Shiites in Lebanon, but the, the Lebanese public as a whole. So that includes things like rebranding their electioneering materials, particularly uh, stuff that's being distributed near Christian neighborhoods. They changed the slogan on their flag. So in their early years, their slogan is which means the Islamic Revolution in Lebanon, which is a reference to the Islamic Revolution in Iran. But after the Civil War, they change it to which means uh, the Islamic resistance, which is a reference to resistance on behalf of Lebanon as a whole, not just on behalf of the Shiite community uh, or, or sort of in pursuit of, of Hezbollah's goals as an organization. And this rebranding effort is ultimately very, very successful. Um, when you look at polling numbers around Hezbollah, it's not that there's broad support for them full stop outside uh, the Shiite community, but it's a subject of conversation. It, there's not this immediate assumption that if you're not Shiite, uh, you're going to be hateful or distrustful towards Hezbollah. They do manage to convince quite a lot of Christians, uh, particularly during and after the July War, that they are uh, Lebanon's best bet for defense against Israel, particularly in the South. And some of their marketing is also based on policy choices that they've made uh, that, in retrospect, were very, very clever. So after Israel pulls out of South Lebanon in 2000, um, Hezbollah immediately claims it as a victory for Hezbollah, but also uh, they're very careful not to be seen uh, as taking revenge against Christians in what had been known as the security zone, the area that Israel controlled in the south. 
Um, you know, there are no mass arrests. There aren't, you know, wide-scale revenge killings. People who'd worked with the Israelis are turned over to the Lebanese army. And Hezbollah makes a lot of hay out of this politically. And they do a very good job at, at sort of reframing themselves as this very um, reputable and trustworthy and uh, and sort of well-organized organization in contrast with most of the other militias in Lebanon. Now, that, that marketing that you're describing then, um, it really seems to depend on the ability to portray themselves as Lebanese or even as this broader uh, resistance. But uh, how does that work in an era like we're living in now, which is so polarized around sectarian identity? Does this fundamentally undermine that strategy? Well, and that's the big question. Um, Hezbollah, as you've said, did put a lot of work into being seen as Lebanese rather than Shiite, because in the early years they really were seen as Shiite and and almost as Iranian, uh, even though you know Hezbollah's founders were, were for the most part all born in Lebanon, were Lebanese Arabs, were not uh, Iranians. Um, but I think it, it's a mistake to assume that sectarian divisions are the be all and end all of political orientation in the Middle East, and I think it's also a mistake to assume that they're unchanging. The schism between Sunnis and Shia is, of course, tremendously important politically right now. We see this you know, all over the region, but it wasn't always. And it's taken a lot of work by actors who are quite interested in maintaining that schism to make that as important as it has been. And I think uh, there is space for pushback against that narrative. I think for now, um, it serves Hezbollah's interests, particularly in Syria, to demonize groups like ISIS uh, and to frame what they're doing in Syria as being about defense of a better regional order against, you know, the forces of, of chaos, which is, you know, for them what ISIS represent. Um, and, you know, ISIS have also killed huge numbers of Shiites, so it's not a, it's not a hard sell for Shiites in Lebanon, uh, you know, what, what Hezbollah is doing. But... Um, for other people, for Sunnis in Lebanon, it is uh, it is troubling to see Hezbollah fighting to support the Assad regime um, in Syria, and and that's made their political position at home increasingly difficult, and it, it's not going to get any easier as long as they're in Syria. So the book isn't only about Hezbollah, of course. Uh, so that, that seems to be uh, like the case where the mechanisms that you're describing really seem to play out. But can you give us an example of a rebel group or an insurgent group that failed at this and that and then that it mattered that they failed to do this effectively? Well, you know, militant groups are are sometimes said to be like restaurants in that 95% of them fail in the first year. Uh, so the groups that are really bad at this stuff um, often don't end up having books written about them because they don't really survive long enough uh, to to make it to the big leagues, as it were. But, uh, you know, much, much as... Um, Different successful militant groups can can be successful in different ways. Unsuccessful militant groups can also be unsuccessful in different ways. So a group that's um, great at foreign policy but lousy at domestic policy is going to look really different than a group that's great at domestic policy but lousy at foreign policy. So uh, the PLO is a really good example of a group that uh, was pretty good in terms of foreign policy but that made a lot of mistakes, especially in Jordan and Lebanon, in terms of how they dealt with local communities. 
So the PLO uh, does a great job throughout the 1970s uh, and, and 1980s of establishing support for the Palestinian national movement as being uh, this barometer for credibility as an Arab nationalist and for credibility within Arab politics to the point where they're, you know, they're essentially able to go to the Gulf states and say, uh, you have to support us. You know you have to support us. So, you know, open the wallets, please. Uh, because, you know, the PLO has this tremendous amount of ideological clout in the Arab world. Um, but at the same time, they kind of take it for granted that people in civilian communities in South Lebanon or, you know, or in, in Amman and Jordan are going to have the same level of support for the organization. And they just don't. And so when the PLO behaves really badly in South Lebanon, I mean, I, I heard stories when I was doing interviews of, you know, guys who would say, yeah, we'd take a tank uh, into the nearest village to go buy a pack of cigarettes. I mean, you can imagine what a tank would do to roads in some tiny village in South Lebanon. Uh, there was a huge amount of resentment. Uh, of the, the Fedayeen, of the Palestinian fighters, which they were really kind of blindsided by. I think they didn't quite realize just how bad things had gotten with the local communities until the Israelis rolled across the border in 1982 and the Shiite villagers were throwing rice at them because uh, they were so happy to see the back of the PLO. Uh, that shouldn't be misconstrued as support for the Israeli occupation of South Lebanon, of course. There, there wasn't a lot of support for that. But I think it's an indicator of how badly the PLO miscalculated with regard to their relations uh, with people in South Lebanon. And that's that's something that a lot of the former PLO folks that I spoke with were extremely explicit about. Um, I mean, this was this was what they saw. This was, you know, looking back, this was their big regret. They wished that they'd handled things a bit better. What wasn't equally true for every PLO faction. The, PL, the PFLP had a much better reputation than, uh, than some of the other factions. But across the board, I mean, there was a lot of resentment. And that's something that I think they probably could have avoided uh, with some better planning. Now, one of the one of the issues that uh, that the book raises theoretically really does seem to be this question of the different ways that external support can help or hurt uh, these militant groups. Um, and uh, so it sounds like some groups uh, are able to take these foreign flows of money or guns and really make quite a bit of political capital out of it. And others, it just seems to, you know, take them away from the local communities. Do you have any sense of how we can understand when foreign assistance to these militant groups uh, tends to be a positive versus a negative in terms of their effectiveness? Yeah, I, absolutely. So I think it comes back to the strategy by which it was obtained in the first place. So militant groups that build their relationships with their foreign sponsors based on a shared ideological project are much more likely to find that that relationship can can weather some pretty difficult stuff. So Hezbollah and their relationship with Iran, uh, their relationship is an example of one that's based on a deeply felt ideological tie. Many of the people who founded Hezbollah knew the folks who had led the Islamic Revolution in Iran uh, from before the revolution. I mean, some of them had studied together in religious schools in Iraq uh, when a lot of the, the guys who would lead the revolution were in exile from the Shah's government, they hid out in South Lebanon. I mean, some of them you know, married women from South Lebanon. So um, there were these deep personal and ideological ties between these two sets of, of uh, organizers and ideologues, which meant that um, there were people in Iran who were really on board with what Hezbollah was trying to do in Lebanon and were really, really committed to supporting them. 
In contrast, when you have an organization whose relationship with their sponsors is sort of a marriage of convenience, maybe it's based on a common enemy, but sometimes it's just based on this, you know, the sponsor needing somebody to set off bombs somewhere, uh, not really on a, on a shared political project or a shared set of ideological commitments. Those relationships tend to be uh, much more fragile, and it's also much more likely that the militant group is going to end up being distracted from their core project because they're running around doing the thing that their sponsor wants them to do, which is in fact not the same thing that they themselves want to be doing. So Hamas's relationship with uh, Syria and Iran is a pretty good example of that. Um, I mean, Syria as a sponsor for Hamas is kind of a weird outcome. As we know, you know, the Syrian regime of of Hafez al-Assad brutally repressed their own branch of the Muslim Brotherhood during the Hama massacre uh, and you know, has no love for the, the Muslim Brotherhood on a regional level. And yet, you know, here's Hamas, which you know grows out of the Palestinian branch of the Muslim Brotherhood, getting all of the support from Syria. That's not because Syria is really on board with Hamas's political project. It's because after Oslo, they were pretty much Syria's only option in terms of a major Palestinian political group that was on the ground, you know, inside uh, historical Palestine that was opposed to the Oslo process. Um, so it's maybe not so surprising that, you know, when the Arab Spring breaks out, as soon as Hamas has another option, as soon as they have, um, or what they thought was another option in the form of the Morsi government, they jumped ship and they, um, you know, they, they went looking for their allies. As it turns out, that was not a great move <laughs> from a strategic perspective on Hamas's part, but it's understandable as to why they would why they would think that maybe a Muslim Brotherhood dominated government would be a better fit in Syria. So it sounds like um, it, rather than take a uh, you know a, an all or nothing view about you know these militant groups as proxies for external forces, you see it as a much more dynamic uh, strategic relationship. Sometimes they are just proxies, and sometimes they're not. Yeah, absolutely. So when, when looking ahead then, uh, you know, just trying to see how this will play out, you know, if you look around the region today, you know, what, which groups do you see uh, as most likely to succeed at marketing themselves and embedding themselves in local communities? Um, and which ones do you think are, are heading into real trouble? So, I mean, Syria, I think, is the, is the conflict where we'd all like to be able to do a bit better at, at predicting what's going on, uh, maybe maybe than we have been. But I think one of the most interesting contrasts in Syria uh, is between ISIS on the one hand and the Kurdish forces on the other. So ISIS is an example of a group that has used almost exclusively coercive tactics to try and, and get what they want, both from, um, well, primarily from the civilian population. In their early years, they were kind of able to get around the need to build any kind of foreign policy at all because they had uh, all of these substantial but but basically non-renewable financial assets uh, in the form of hostages, um, antiquities, oil wells. But a lot of that is starting to dry up, uh, and they haven't really cultivated any kind of base of either foreign foreign sponsors or or really foreign donors beyond a couple of sympathetic uh, sympathetic folks in the Gulf. So. Um, they've been left uh, trying to extract resources from their domestic population, but they also haven't done a terribly good job of selling their political mission other than just kind of yelling at people about it. So 
you know, things like uh, Albumia, Altabiak, which are their their very flashy, like glossy foreign language publications, may be great uh, for you know convincing European teenagers to defy their parents by running off and joining ISIS. Uh, but their Arabic language stuff, I think, has not done a particularly good job of convincing people in Syria, for instance, um, that what ISIS is selling is is what they should be buying. They've got, you know, they've got recruits from Tunisia, they've got recruits from Jordan, a couple of other Arab countries, but people who are actually in um, the territory referred to somewhat inaccurately mm-hmm. as the Islamic State don't seem terribly impressed. Whereas the Kurds are doing a better job with this. Yeah, the Kurds have done a much better job with this. They, um, they've realized that just appealing uh, on, you know, on an ethno-national basis to Kurds in northern Syria is probably not going to get the job done. So they've, they've tried to reach out to Arab populations. They've tried to include Arab communities in the, the state-building project, even though they're not really calling it a state-building project. Um, they're trying to build up services, and they're publicizing the fact that they're building up services. Uh, the one thing that Hamas has always been really good at is using their social services as a way of competing with the Palestinian Authority, uh, pointing to the, the services that they've built up, even on a small scale, and saying, you know, look at how great our clinics are, look at how well organized our schools are. We would be so much better at running the government um, than, you know, these uh, corrupt politicians that you're stuck with now. And the Kurds are doing something fairly similar. On a very small scale, they're starting to build up a lot of state institutions, which they're able to point to and say, look at this. Um, we really are qualified to govern. We really are able to manage institutions. Um, you know, people ought to support our aspirations for autonomy because, you know, we, we can deliver the goods. We are able to, to be good managers. We're not corrupt. We're uh, you know, we're people that you ought to trust running a state. Which is the last thing in the world that Turkey wants to hear. <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, and, and of course, you know, there are all sorts of other foreign variables. But, you know, look, so far the Kurds uh, have actually done a pretty good job of making friends abroad. Uh, the fact, you know, they're, the Syrian Kurds share DNA with the PKK, which is a, a far left organization that, you know, had the hammer and sickle on its flag up until, up until the 1990s. Um, late 1990s, and and yet uh, the Syrian Kurdish organizations have been able to get quite a lot of support out of the United States, which is not that that is no mean feat. And some of this is based on uh, you know the fact that nobody nobody likes ISIS, but some of it is based on the fact that the Kurds, despite their you know leftist ideological commitments, have been able to build a pretty good case for the idea of themselves as being the only real pro-democracy force fighting in the civil, Syrian civil war at this point. Um, I mean, you can debate how much that's true, but they've certainly managed to convince some American policymakers of that fact. All right. Well, thanks. Uh, we've been speaking with Ora Seckley, author of new book, uh, The Politics of Militant Group Survival in the Middle East. Um, Ora, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Mark.